Hi guys, welcome back to My Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today is another fantastic day for an interview because I have got Elizabeth Lavacek with me. Elizabeth, uh, when, I, when I read her story first, the very first thing that caught me was that she is a deadly diseases investigator. And I thought, wow, that's cool. That's cool because I'm a doctor and I've forever been interested in pandemics. And so to, to actually uh, be, be, uh, talk to someone who's actually there on the cold front. Yes, I want to do that. I want to do that. So she had me there. But then she put the icing on the, on the cake because she actually said, look, I actually became subsequently a healer of healers. And I talk about spiritual emergencies. And I thought, Hang on. So you have got deadly diseases investigator, which is completely one side of the brain. And then spiritual awakening is the other side of the brain. Now, not so many people who actually can say that they've activated both of their brains. Now, this is cool. So I need to have this woman on my show. And guess what? Here she is. Ladies and gentlemen, I have got Elizabeth Lavacek. Welcome to my show. <laughs> oh, what an intro, Stefan. My honor. <laughs> <laughs> oh no it's just it's just amazing how uh, how beautiful the range of people is that i meet and mm -hmm. that I, I get to interview um because our paths cross because here you are you have gone through your darkness and you have gone through moments of awakening moments of light that suddenly you realize, hang on, uh, this is my path is actually not really aligned with what I need to do, what I'm destined to do. And that is that is virtually true for every single person I talk to on this show. That's often so true for those people that I meet in my daily life. But they are, they are most of them are stuck in, in their darkness or on the treadmill and just going on the hamster wheel round and round, a rut, basically. Uh, and it's those of us who have really been in the darkness, who became so uncomfortable and so sick and tired of being sick and tired that they simply had to change. And that's where the magic happens. That's where the transformation comes in. And that's where you had exactly the same story. So therefore, Elizabeth, first of all, how do you become a deadly diseases investigator? I mean, that's not something you wake up when you're seven years old and say, you know what, mommy? I thought about that. Hmm. <laughs> How did that happen? <laughs> well, there's definitely a lot of ways to get to that point. But mine was uh, I was in veterinary school to become a horse vet. And my junior year, um, there was a course called epidemiology. We all had to take it. And physicians have to take that, too. There was one specific lecture that really caught my attention. And it was about an outbreak investigation. And the professor is a veterinarian. His specialty is epidemiology. And the, the veterinary school I went to is titled Veterinary Medicine and Population Health. So they already had that slant. And they, they actually have now joint programs where you can finish your DVM and then finish the Master's of Public Health. But they didn't have that in place at the time for me. But I was already kind of realizing, mm, I don't know if it, being a large animal veterinarian is really quite the right thing for me because I came from a family of physicians and nurses and I was getting a lot of pressure to become a physician and there's other things I thought I was going to do. So compromise, go to veterinary school. And I'm like, you know, I really want to, that captured me because I knew right away that it would be big impact. 
doing something like that. So I went up to the professor afterwards and said, can I do that? And he said, of course, he lights up and says, of course you can. And so it wasn't until probably a couple of months later, I saw a sign on the wall in the lecture hall that talked about our program to go to the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta and do an internship, a rotation there. And so I asked if I could do that, and I did. And so I, I already was getting in the trenches experience doing infectious disease work alongside a federal scientist with that during my senior year of vet school. And I went out and practiced as a large animal veterinarian. And, you know, but right before I graduated, I actually asked veterinarians who are in different fields besides private practice that were either working at the State Department of Agriculture or in public health. And they all said, you know, go out and practice first. It'll make you a much better public health person, a professional, if you go out and practice first. So I did. And then I went back to study public health um, and really enjoyed, just was drawn to infectious disease epidemiology which fits well with a veterinarian because at the time I was hired as a bioterrorism epidemiologist. This was before September 11th and the anthrax letters. So uh, I was hired. They really liked it when I interviewed for that because they saw that the category A, that what they call the select agents, the Centers for Disease Control, has these certain diseases they think are most likely for terrorists to try to weaponize. And most of those diseases are animal in origin. So they really wanted to hire me. So that's how I got my foot in the door in public health. Interesting. And no surprise there. That was interesting. When did you have those discussions? When did you start that journey? So it was, see, I graduated veterinary school in 97. So that was probably 1995 was when I first realized that I probably wanted to go in public health eventually. And so I, I practiced in public health for 20 years. First is a bioterrorism epidemiologist and then a public health veterinarian. I'm just trying to put that into the world um, events that were happening at that time. And it's beautiful to see that actually someone was switched on enough to actually think about those lines. Um, around, yeah. the, around about that time, Ken Alibek um, or Kanatyan Alibekov, uh, 1992, was the, the head of the Russian biological warfare program who actually defected. Um, and he wrote a book uh, about bioweapons, etc. And it was just what an eye opener. Um, mm -hmm. So therefore, when I read that book, I realized, oh, shit. Uh, we're all knee deep in shit because enough things had already occurred over the last 20, 30 years of his career. And uh, then the USSR was falling apart. And now suddenly all these weapons and all these things were easily available. Madness, mm -hmm. I thought, then. Now we have got again madness. Because not only did we just have COVID coming, no, we have got Putin doing interesting things in uh, in at the moment, isolated in Ukraine, but everyone is wondering what is next. Um, mm -hmm. You have got all these agents being around. So this is uh, this, these are some very interesting times. Mm -hmm. But that is a complete different story. That is some something I would love to talk with you, but better maybe off, off camera. Um, so, <laughs> so coming back to your journey, because here you were um, successful and very much in demand um, because things only got worse from then on. There were the anthrax yes. letters you said with that. Were you involved in, in, in those kind of more um, uh, the hunt for the culprits? So I wasn't involved in responding to investigating the perpetrators. It was more in terms of 
where this was happening real, the actual real anthrax letters, it was the threat of, so if somebody opened something and they, there was white powder in it, they would call 911. And so I was in charge with my boss and an infectious disease doctor to coordinate, um, trying to go basically provide support to law enforcement and fire to get a sample and get it to our state lab and test it to see if it was actually anthrax. And in the meantime, telling people just to, to, to lay low and, and just wait for the results. And none of them were, were real anthrax letters in Arizona, but the federal government recognized that, that there might be a larger biowarfare event. They were already preparing for one, such as smallpox. That was one thing we were really preparing for was a smallpox being weaponized. And, and then over time, when an, an, an additional biowarfare event didn't happen in the United States, the federal government and CDC basically repurposed the funding to prepare for the next pandemic. And so I actually was in charge of that for the state of Arizona. And we did like this large uh, teaching education demonstration packages, basically acting like we're getting supplies from the national pharmaceutical stockpile for ventilators and, you know, medications and all that. So I practiced, I basically helped coordinate exercises to make sure we we're prepared. And then over time we, we were like, well, we're going to do a mass vaccination clinic exercise over and over again, because it could be influenza. So then we started focusing on that the next pandemic may be even influenza. And that's really honestly what scientists thought was gonna happen. But we had warning signs. SARS was one of them, so closely related to this COVID virus. They're both coronaviruses. Um, so- MERS. MERS was the other one where we were lucky, which is the Middle Eastern respiratory virus that luckily was very lethal, but uh, not very contagious. So we got away with that one. Are you talking about MERS? Yeah. MERS, yes, and MERS as well. So we definitely had some uh, warning signs. Meanwhile, I ended up then being promoted eventually to become what's called a state public health veterinarian, and I did that in two different states. And so my my job was surveillance prevention and control of infectious diseases that either affect both animals and humans or go directly from animals to humans. Mm. And then I got tired of that after a while. So I did that for a long time, and I decided, you know, I really want to work at a local level. And being an epidemiologist, maybe at a local health department. And I ended up interviewing for a job here in this town that I'm broadcasting from, or being interviewed by. Um, and I was a public health department director. So you name it, anything that affected the population as a whole, not an individual, but the whole, we were addressing. Very background kind of work. Public health, we shape communities so that it's easier to make healthy choices and it's more difficult to make unhealthy choices. And we ensure that the environment is as healthy as possible, the immediate environment around people. So when they go to restaurants, the food is healthy, that the water is safe to drink, that there's good sidewalks to walk on, mm. that is good produce available for, for easily for people to buy. The list just goes on and on. But we always had funds to be preparing for a pandemic and we would do exercises every year. And about a year before the pandemic hit, it was pretty burnout, Stefan. And I said, I didn't say this to anybody. <laughs> I didn't write it down. I just had this inner knowing. I said, I do not want to be a public health leader when the next big infectious disease outbreak happens and it's coming. And if you think about it, if you look back at the 1918 flu pandemic, we were kind of due, humanity was due. And that's not flippant. Like every life that was lost, all that suffering is horrible. 
But when you look at history over infectious diseases, you had diseases kind of clean up the population. Not to say that the souls that we lost or suffered weren't incredibly valuable. I'm not saying that at all. It's just that Mother Earth unfortunately produces some pretty nasty diseases at times. And we were partly at fault, is my opinion, um, at, at how it emerged. But um, so we had plenty of warning signs that this was coming. No one knew exactly when it was going to come. Oh, it was, was, it was overdue. Elizabeth, it was yes. overdue. We know they come in cycles of about 30 years. We had the last mm -hmm. major one that sort of killed uh, up to a million was in the 50s, 60s. Uh, you know, we were well overdue of another pandemic that kills at least a million people end of the story. The warning was there. Um, the history was there. And those who do not uh, look at history are bound to have to repeat the lessons. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. this, this world is, is doing exactly that. So I think yeah. we, need to, be, we take, need to take more ownership there, including your government and all the governments around the world, because it was yeah. so blatantly bloody obvious. And that is what annoys me so much when I saw the response um, of, of your country specifically. But it, it, I don't want to single out the United States because around the world was exactly the same thing. Money was put much higher. Oh, no, 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 no. How, what do you mean lockdown? No way. And it was, and then, you know, how many people have, have died? A whole generation of elderly has died in Italy, uh, where sort of one of the epicenters was. And that, is, that was all reality. We had to watch it. And yet yeah. uh, our governments were not following through as aggressive as they should. We here in New Zealand were extremely lucky because we are an island far away from everywhere and we locked down. And therefore, we actually were blessed with ultimately, I mean, all in all, we've got, I think, 1,700 deaths, all in all, for the whole everything. Wow, you know? that's unbelievable. That's bugger all. It's bugger all. Um, yet, our our tourism industry has been, it was a chainsaw massacre. Um, towns have been devastated, which were relying on tourism. So many, there were many, many more deaths, maybe due to mental health problems in a very different category. So please, yep. so this was brutal times. Yeah. So, he, so here's the silver lining though about it, right? So when we have dark events happen, we have loss, we have grief, um, trauma, which definitely the pandemic was very much for that, for the whole world. And it created a time for pause, hmm. for grieving, for reflection, for ex exploration inside of each one of us on what is really important. Correct. And um, I was in the middle of nowhere in my RV camping about to interview for some little fun job. And then uh, <laughs> sheriff comes knocking on my door. I'm sorry, but you have to leave. And anyway, it's a long, funny story, but the ba basically he was forcing a public health order, law enforcement enforces a public health order. And I was so embarrassed. And I said, I was going to leave, but I have a job interview in a couple of days. He's like, you can stay. And so anyway, the point being was then I had a lot of time to reflect in the desert by myself because he kicked everybody else out except me because I was interviewing for a local job. And I was like, oh, here it is. Whoa, this is what my soul knew was coming. Oh, and I was like, I'm writing my book. I'm taking all these transformational coaching courses to help people. And I I realized, I think I need to go back to help. 
this is this is my bag. Infectious disease epidemiology is what I did for 20 years, yeah. including when I was the health department director. So um, I basically uh, started looking for like telecommuting jobs where I could somehow help. And I ended up helping. I was living in, I went from Utah to Colorado anyway. I ended up basically helping a state health department where I used to work. And I was a lead case investigator. So I basically interviewed people who had been become sick. They were at home. Hopefully they were home when I called. Some of them were still in the hospital. This person is still not home mm-hmm. from the hospital. Um, or anyway, and I would ask them questions about how are they feeling, try to figure out where they got sick. And I'd be asking them to please stay at home to prevent them from getting other people sick. And then ask them if they need resources. How are you doing? All right, do you have someone to help you get groceries? Um, are you feeling well enough to stay at home for a while? Do you have enough bill, enough money to pay for your bills if you're not going to work? And that was real. And so like the state departments of human resources were saying, here's some links they can apply for funds. So to help support them to stay at home so they, they can't work. Um, so those are the things that I was doing. And I just did that for a few months. But I'd so I would like to reflect about mental health and how this all inter twines with my story um because your listeners it sounds like are struggling with mental health issues and that's why they reached for substances and um and I had that myself in my journey <laughs> so um so one of the things that I did about population health so we're all looking at the whole population that's why the reason why public health is response to the pandemic because it's to the whole population so one of the things I was doing before the pandemic was I got to look at the lay of land, not just infectious diseases, not this specialty stuff, but looking at everything. And I would go to these community meetings with my colleagues from a six county region in a very rural area. And I saw that their last assessment, we have to do assessments every five years to see what are the top few issues that we need to focus on, see what we can do to address that. And one of them of the top four was mental health and substance abuse. But I noticed in the meetings, We'd only talk about it for five minutes. This is out of a four-hour meeting. (laughs) And there was just complaints about it and nothing would happen. And I was like, oh, this is interesting because I'm new. So I'm listening for the first year and a half. And we all take turns to be a chair of the committee, of this this regional committee. And so I just watched and listened and watched and listened. And then I'm like, oh, now it's my turn. So the first day I was chair, I said, I promised myself once I became chair that I would not let us just simply complain for a few minutes and ignore mental health and substance use. And the look of fear on my colleague's face had to be explained over time because I was still relatively new. And it was because the funding in the state of Colorado for addressing mental health and substance abuse go to a different organization, siloed. So this is the problem about government that a lot of things we do with these organizations. So even though it's a health issue, it goes through human services, which normally does things like child abuse prevention, uh, food stamps, um, some some of the very, they're very much related to the core of what we need. And like, if you look at the pyramid of what we need in order to become self-actualized, you know, safety, food, all that. So, so mental health is somehow siloed into that in the state of Colorado. And so like, we don't have funds to address that. And I said, okay, I get that. There's another organization that's dealing with that. It's their job. Said it's all related, the mind and the body, and of course, I'll talk more about how spirit is intertwined as well, are all interrelated. We can't ignore them. 
our brain is right here. Exactly. <laughs> like, like we cannot, it's so intertwined. We can't ignore it. We at least need to be part of the conversation and see what we can do as our part. And then like, so I said, can I look for funds? If Can I look for funds that might be coming mm. so that we can address it? Fine. Sure enough, here come two grants. And one of them was from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, which is the federal entity in the United States that oversees insurance for the underinsured that are younger and, and the aged. And they are recognizing, wow, mental health substance abuse is such a big issue. We got to figure out, we got to address it from the root cause, not just each individual. So they provided a grant and we, state of Colorado was one of the first in the United States. There's just a few states that had the opportunity and local health departments could apply for it. And the goal of the grant was to integrate behavioral health into primary care settings and to reduce stigma around mental health in general in the whole population. Brilliant. Talk about a major task to take on. Mm. <laughs> so we were just one part of a big cadre of folks in the state of Colorado who are trying to address this. And it was a big task and it was great. So I basically said, I found a grant. And then I got a big pushback from my colleagues. Why should we care about doctors? Because we're supposed to work with doctors on this. I'm like, what? because I come from a family of physicians, right? And I used to work in their offices. Why should we care about mental health? And I was like, duh. So one of the things I learned in public health is that statistics don't go too far. Like as a scientist, we can look at it and go, oh, look at these numbers. You have to hit the heart of people in order to get them to move to take action, including my fellow scientists. So I'm going I'm to tell a story now and it's gonna be painful for me to share. I'll probably cry. And I'll explain to you why stigma and mental health and primary care is important. And so I told a personal story from my family. And just to honor my family, I'm not going to go further on that. But you could have heard a pin drop when I finished telling the story. And they said, fine, you can apply the, the, for the grant. I applied. I didn't get it the first round. I called and I complained. Why didn't we get it? I had this healthy debate. And I'm like, okay, I see what I did wrong during the application. It's a shame I made those mistakes in the application because we really need this. A few weeks later, I got an email. Congratulations, you got the grant. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So, Perseverance. So just, yeah, just being the squeaky wheel we say in the United States, I guess. <laughs> Nice. So and keep going. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, no keep well, going. I mean, I mean, okay, okay. <laughs> so I was very passionate. So I became a mental health advocate. So part of the goal was to bring in um, the, the hospitals, that center for mental health that's funded through the different source, right? And then emergency medical services, law enforcement, public health. The doctor's offices that are federally funded, we call them call, call, like bring them all together in a room and let's figure out how to do this, address it strategically. That was huge. Like us doing that in our region of Colorado, the federal government took note. So I was very excited about that effort. Mental health first aid is something that I don't know. Do you have that overseas? Mental health first aid? Okay. It's a US thing. Okay. So you go basically, it's for anybody, it's like I call it the first aid of the mind instead of first aid for the body. So it's a similar concept. You're providing some aid. You're being taught the right things to say and create space for listening and hopefully be discouraged from saying the wrong things. I've certainly had that happen to me. And then get people into the right hands, people who can help them. And so we're pushing that out um, uh, into the community. 
But I got that grant and another grant and I was pushing myself so hard. I come home so stressed out, talk about anxiety, uh, that my partner left my life and I couldn't handle it. And I spun into deep clinical depression. <laughs> and the doctors were trying to put me on antidepressants. I was doing everything that traditional mental health services were telling me to do, you know, deep self-care, all the, and I've ended up then while I was clinically depressed, attracting in trauma, more loss, more trauma. And I, I, I just, I, one day I just said, whoa, I don't know what's happening, but this is super dark. I know this is not a coincidence for me right now. I'm in the middle of leading a large mental health grant and I can't get myself out of depression. So that I'll just pause. So for now, is that too long of a story already? <laughs> oh, no, no, because that's the reality. That's life. You're getting involved in something. You invest yourself and then some, and then some shit happens. And then you try to deal with the changes and you work, 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 work. You focus on, on everything else but yourself. And then, then your mood goes dark. This is such a recurring theme. And mm -hmm. it's such a common theme. One in three people will be like you. It, that's the lifetime prevalence of, of clinical depression. One in four, one in three, something about there. So this is normal, what you're describing for someone mm -hmm. who, is, who is aware of what's going on. But for you, when it hits you, this came out of the blue. Did you recognize it at that time? I just, I, there, there's a scene I, I describe in my book where my doctors kept prescribing antidepressants and I didn't want to take it. And I was doing other things like I was a triathlete and exercising a lot. And I looked at the, the side effects, gut problems. And I was like, I already have gut problems. I don't want to take this because then I might not be able to exercise like I like. And then, and then, okay, what are the withdrawal symptoms? Whoa, this is the same thing I'm experiencing now. It feels like it's just delaying what I'm already experiencing now. There's got to be another way. And I looked in the mirror and I started crying and I was like, I am going to figure out another way. So yeah, I knew that this was being planned for me to figure it out another way. And I didn't know what it was, but I started exploring. A family member, a cousin, a distant cousin, knew that I was going through something very dark. She knew she knew I was struggling and she sent me Deepak Chopra meditation, free 21 day challenge. And I liked it. I tried it and I was like, oh, this makes sense. You know, I, changing my thought patterns. And then I went to the local library and checked out books about mindfulness and meditation. And I just went deep. It was not very long, only a few weeks later, that I started experiencing like blissful out-of-body experiences. And I'd have them and I, oh, I would, what was that? <laughs> so I, this isn't right. I like it, but, and then I'd go dark again, go right back into my old, you know, and I barely remember those blissful moments. And then I'd have another one and another one. And so I, I went to my traditional counselor where I was going. Uh, and I said to her, is it normal to have euphoric experiences when you're coming out of depression? And she's like, what? And I'm like, they're kind of like orgasms. <laughs> and she looked at me, eyebrow cocked. Uh -huh. I'm like, whoa, I did not want to tell her anything else because I knew if I did, 
I would have probably been put in an institution, which turns out that actually happens quite a bit when someone's having a spiritual awakening. So I ended up uh, basically spiritually exploring and meditating daily. And it was so healing. And my journey after that just goes deeper and deeper. And so I didn't know what I was experiencing until I had already decided I was going to become a health coach. So I was like, okay, I'm not going to be a public health leader anymore. I was taking all these courses. And and then I realized I'm having this crazy experience. And I'm like on this organization's webpage called Assist, which is American Center for Integrating Spiritually Transformative Experiences. And I'm not sure how I landed on that webpage. I think there was some divine forces helping guiding my Google. And I'm like, what's this? And I'm like, oh, Oh, and then the, the webpage went away and I was like, what's going on? Oh, we're building it out or whatever. So I was like waiting for bated breath for there's an organization that knows what I'm going through. And so I had to wait quite a while. I eventually went back on it and said, I want to volunteer to be in a study group because I'm a scientist, right? I'm like, I, someone needs to study what's going on in me. This is really beautiful, but it's, it's not, it's destabilizing and I'm having a really hard time functioning. And so this person said, have you reached out to Emma Bragdon? And she's got a PhD in transpersonal psychology and she has her own integrative mental health university. I go on her webpage, I get a couple sessions from her and she's explained to me what I am having, which is called a spiritual emergence. Um, so I'd like to read from her out of respect to her because she's quite, she's written books that she's a very left brain scientist who's researched this a lot and speaks about this. Shall I define it from her? Yeah, please, please. Okay, okay. got to get the glasses on. <laughs> so her definition is, spiritual emergence is the process of personal awakening into a level of perceiving and functioning, which is beyond normal ego functioning. The process may at first include one of the following phenomena, out-of-body experiences, occult phenomena, precognition, clairvoyance, astral travel, and perceptions of auras. At its peak, spiritual emergence is the experience of the ultimate unity of all things, a mystical experience, emerging with the divine, which transcends verbal description. Among the positive effects of this process are increased creativity, feelings of peace, and an expanded sense of compassion. And that's paraphrased from a much, much longer explanation from her. And so what I was having, which is not in the list, but it's in the training that I took from her, is something called a kundalini rising. And I had learned, I'd heard the word kundalini, like kundalini yoga. I'd heard about chakras. And I was such a left-brain scientist. I was like, woo-woo, woo-woo. <laughs> Even though I was a yoga instructor already. And so, and I was raised by... German Catholic immigrants that are old enough to be my grandparents and bless their souls. They're still alive and just amazing individuals, but you know, left brain, left brain, left brain, uh, raised that way. So I had to experience it for myself to then start going, Oh, what is this? I got to look, I turned to deep old ancient Eastern wisdom. And so I'd like to share a definition from Steve Taylor, who studied the Eastern traditions. And he wrote a book called the leap. His definition is, in the Indian spiritual traditions of yoga and tantra, sudden energetic awakenings are depicted as kundalini awakening. Kundalini, derived from the Sanskrit word kunda, 
spelled with a K, K-U-N-D-A, meaning to coil or to spiral, is an intense and explosive form of energy that lies dormant in the lowest of the seven chakras. So I still, it took me a long time to understand what that was. Um, and there's whole books written about it, including one from uh, psychologists and physicians who are open-minded and know that this does happen. It's a pretty rare event, but I think with the pandemic, there's a lot of people that have been pushed to the edge, loss, grief, trauma, anxiety, depression, and they're exploring and it's happening. Now I see people spiritually exploring quite a bit. And so I love supporting people who are spiritually exploring, but I, I, because I'm a left brain scientist, I really do practice and encourage discernment because there is a, there is a lot of woo woo stuff out there related to spirituality. Mm -hmm. And I like to support people to become grounded again to make sure they're safe, to spiritually explore with discernment and find the right path for them. And what's so beautiful about that is that this is where the intertwining of mental health and spirituality come. So I, the other piece that had to happen in order to understand what I was experiencing was I didn't have a mental health professional that understood what I was going through that I could speak to. And I was scared. And I, I just put it out there. I'm like, I need help. And like not too long after that, probably two or three months, I was introduced. Literally, she saw me across a gathering and something told her to introduce herself to me. And she became my counselor. She also had a dramatic spiritual awakening and is a mental health professional with deep spiritual competency. Nice. And that that word is, is borrowed from uh, uh, some scientists that actually have a whole, it's, in my, it's at the back of my book, they have a whole webpage with training for mental and physical health professionals so that they can recognize the spiritual awakening and they can support people to go deep, to get through whatever it is that they're going through. So I like supporting people to use both Eastern and Western approaches. Absolutely. We should do that with everything, mind, body, and spirit. I honestly am very passionate about that now. So I'll pause now. <laughs> you don't need to pause. <laughs> that is such important, important stuff that you're saying there. But then again, I play now devil's advocate. Um, and not because I um, I think that what you're saying is wrong. No, I, I just want to put another, another facet onto it. Um, there are not just spiritual awakenings. There are also um, problems in the mind where people just with the pandemics, which come in cycles, people also have got trouble that come in cycles. So there's the bipolar disorder. So you have got the darkness, the depression that is then suddenly interrupted by a manic episode. And manic typically going absolutely the world is wonderful i love it we need to go out i want to buy two porsches i line i buy three porsches and i i want to spend all the money with my friends because the life is so beautiful that is a manic episode um and it's sometimes so hard to delineate these kind of things are there spiritual awakenings bloody hell yes there are yes there is a whole healing side a spiritual side out there no two ways around it i've experienced it i was blessed enough to 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 actually uh have healers in in my friendship circles who uh helped me 
and within all means, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful experience uh, to actually, you can practice that, you can train that side of you. And that is all a wonderful thing to do. But there are also times when, especially when you when things are new, that you may wish to just step back for a moment and say, wow, yes, this could be spiritual, cool. But maybe, and just maybe, I need to speak to a to my GP, to my family yes. physician. Um, and maybe if you are a loved one out there where um, your, your relative, son, daughter, um, brother, um, is suddenly experiencing some uh, very strange things in your mind and maybe exhibits strange behavior, please seek help because this could be early onset schizophrenia. There are certain diseases where the, the perception of the mind completely alters. And these are these can be life-threatening to the person involved as well as to, to others if there are uh, suicidal or homicidal thoughts um, are part of that case presentation. So there are certain mental health problems that can very much mimic what you have just described. Yes. So, sure. so, I, so I think there's really, really important that we that we say if something beautiful, such a transformation, if something like that happens, let's rule out the not so nice things yes. because you don't know what is happening. So yes. therefore, it is very well worthwhile to uh, keep a very good relationship with your family physician, uh, with your GP, because that means that you actually, that he, she knows you. So there's one person who has, has accompanied you over the, the last decade, maybe. And then if suddenly yes. something changes, this person can help you to delineate, is that something really beautiful that needs to be embraced? Or is that something that maybe uh, is a sign and symptom of something else? Let's, let's, let's imagine that you develop epilepsy. Um, out of the maybe due to a trauma or something like that, head injury, you develop epilepsy with aura, you see visions, you hear, smell, do things. So that is actually something that needs to be addressed first. Okay. For so sure. there, there are a number of things that need to be maybe considered. And that, that's where I put the caveat in there um, just yes. before we go into the healing, because the healing and the spiritual awakening is very yes. much there. There is a side to us that we do not know. There are skills in us, inside of us that have been dormant and that few people get to explore. And because they are dormant and because not so many people talk about them and deal with them, therefore, when people actually speak about them, it's very easy for others to say, yeah, right, <laughs> uh, tree hugger nutty uh whatever whatever the derogatory terms you want to use yeah, did, yeah. did you experience that i mean you what did your left brain make out of these things were you scared <laughs> i was i was scared because it did not it's not nothing that i had experienced in this lifetime before and it was so blissful it was more blissful than anything else i had experienced and when you have experienced something that tense i was actually thinking am i Am I entering a bipolar phase of my mm. mental health? What is going on? And um, turns out that there's somebody in my book who is thought to be possibly bipolar. And I, I had like these freaking huge aha moments afterwards. And I talked to my counselor about it. And she said, you know, a lot of bipolar people, they don't want to be on medication because 
they want to have the manic episodes because they're so blissful. <laughs> so it can it can prevent the darkness of their bipolar, but then they're not going to have the manic episodes. So, and when they're having these blissful experiences, it, it probably is quite spiritual actually, you know, so there's actually a spiritual component to it. Now I a hundred percent agree with you. on being evaluated by your physician. Believe me, I was going, I was like, check me out. Like I had friends that were like, I had this one girlfriend was like, Oh, it's just menopause. I had all this crazy stuff out of menopause too. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I'm so sick of her saying that. It's not time for my annual. I'm going into my gynecologist. My gynecologist is like, huh? Because he was one of the ones who actually wanted me to take in and presence is like, oh, he's like, you're fine. And I go, would you? I'm like, pull my blood. Uh, and he's like, you're not menopausal. And I'm like, check my hormone levels because yeah. I cannot handle talking to all my girlfriends. They're all thinking that I'm having menopause. So I, you know, it was so funny. So I had to recheck with him. He's like, you're not menopausal. I already told you that. And I was like, <laughs> so he's like, how are you doing? I'm like, better. <laughs> it's just a little wild. And um, so, and then I wanted to go back to my public health hat. So uh, one of the things, the paradigms is public health is that everybody that walks the door, we want to make sure that they have a medical home because a lot of them are coming to us for vaccines because they're not insured. They don't have an they don't have a primary care doctor. And I'm like, okay. And so I'm, I'm booking them an appointment to get a vaccine for their child. And I was like, do you have a primary care doctor? No, I don't have insurance. I can't afford it. Mm. We have a, someone here who can get you on Medicaid if you qualify. And if not, there's another program that's for the next income level above the state mm. funds. Would you like to entertain that? Because there's other things besides vaccine that your children need, you know, or it's someone coming in for STD testing. I did STD testing mm. for free. Mm. And that got the middle-aged folks coming in. And I, uh, okay, I'm so glad you came in and get tested. That's, if you don't do anything else while you're here, that's yeah. fine. But I just wanted to ask you. And so then I, yeah. I literally opened the door of the room where I was testing them and introduced them to the lady who does enrollment for insurance. And so, and the main reason for that is to get them into a primary care doctor who's their medical home, they have a relationship with, yeah. or the same reason you just said, I totally am agreeing. And part of my being trained as spiritual emergence coach, I can only do that individually because I'm also trained in life coaching that's actually mm, acknowledged by International Coaching Federation. And in that, they teach you both the spiritual emergence coaching and life coaching of like, is this someone that you should, something, an issue should be coaching someone through or a person you should be, or should the, should you be referring this to a mental health professional? That is something I practice almost every day when I coach folks. Because it is a lot of times bumping up into the mental health realm, and I'm then the bridge to make sure that they're getting into a mental health care professional that's the right one for them. And if they're having a spiritual awakening, I'm going to try to get them into someone's hands who understands what a spiritual awakening is and can recognize, is this spiritual or is this a mental disorder and get them into medications or whatever they need, because I can't do that. Hmm. So I, that is definitely part of my role. <clears throat> there are people who are having spiritual awakenings. They're afraid to get institutionalized. Here's the other caveat, is spiritual bypassing, which you're kind of referring to that some people are just, I'm having a spiritual experience. Are you, or are you not facing a severe mental health challenge? That's either, either, due to biochemistry or something that you're not addressing in your life. And there's core work you need to do, things you need to change in your life. So yes, I totally agree. 
And I am very serious about doing that. I, and I, I have good liability insurance, but I don't want it to be tested. <laughs> I want to make sure people get the right Absolutely. care. It's not necessarily me. Sometimes I do a consultation. I yeah. do a free discovery call and I'm like getting them into a counselor, not me. Oh, please. So, yeah. And it's a beautiful that you that we both are singing from the same song sheet. And I knew you would. Um, but I just wanted to bring that out to my audience that that uh, people are talking here. We are talking about uh, spiritual awakening. We are talking here about a most beautiful sense of serenity that can be very euphoric, that can be very beautiful. And it is a wonderful, wonderful thing. So I by no means want to, to say that nah, this is mumbo jumbo. On the contrary, this is one of the most beautiful things. And um, it is, and there are many ways how to, to go about that. Um, first time I experienced it was actually because someone hypnotized me um, when I sought help for PTSD. And it was the most a beautiful uh, calmness that came over me. And I loved it. And I was very grateful to the person who helped me with the hypnosis. Um, mm -hmm. Later on, I, I had healers come into my life that equally helped me with their different forms of healing um, and their different practices to help me to get into that state, that state of blissful calmness, of just serenity. And it is, it is a beautiful, beautiful state. Now, there are many ways how you can get there. Um, and you had this all happening to you. It's wonderful that you described it like an orgasm. And I guess the, the after effect, I, I, I didn't have this orgasm like, wow, but I certainly had the, the serenity after the orgasm. The, ah. Oh. And that is so beautiful because I was, I was looking for that throughout my whole life, this mm -hmm. kind of, finally able to relax finally mm. able to jump off the hamster wheel and that is beautiful mm. so how did you train yourself mm. to repeat that and get your get more of it because it can be quite addictive well it was actually sort of the opposite and that's what's interesting about my that's why I want to be somebody that studies this for them I did actually go in a little study um, but it didn't lead to a whole lot I basically, my Kundalini rising wouldn't stop. So um, the chakras are lined up in the sushumna, which is in line with your, your spinal column, your spinal cord. And so my Kundalini was bouncing around and was not continuing to rise smoothly. And it, I was having these kind of out-of-body experiences without even trying. And it's very destabilizing. I'm like trying to run a government agency and I'm like, I, I wake up in the morning, I try to meditate a little bit because I had a lot of stress too at the same time, just, just the normal everyday running the department. So I'd meditate and then I'd come out all blissful. I'd be like, I got to go to work now. Like, uh, <laughs> And then I'd have spontaneous experiences like later in the day. And I'd be like, I got to step down from this job. So that's the other thing. It wasn't just my soul saying the pandemic's coming. It's like, this was time for me. So what I ended up doing was I, I was like, I went on a search for why was a Kundalini rising happening for me? And I'll never know the exact reason it was time for me, but I, I basically, the purpose of that is to find the spiritual path that's right for you and go deep. So I meditate every day and I go so deep that I can quiet my mind and I can feel that soul, peace, joy, love, 
bliss. I'm not given it every day. It's partly my work and it's partly divine forces um, to get back in touch with the deep, deep peace of my soul. And then, and then I learn, and then I, I, I things that there's things I study associated with my spiritual path. So my spiritual path is very specific. And if I mention it, I don't want people to judge me <laughs> just like I don't judge anyone else of their spiritual path. So my spiritual teacher is Yogananda and he came over from India in, in 1920. And he brought, he basically brought an understanding that Jesus taught a form of meditation. That's what he was teaching his disciples. So it was Krishna, Jesus Christ, Krishna, through meditation, you can raise, you can become, realize that you are a divine soul. Every single one of us is. Every human is a beautiful divine soul. And we're all here to grow and evolve. And I don't know why I deserved it. It's a very profoundly ancient form of meditation that goes back thousands of years. I, in my book, I describe how I was led to it. Let me just tell you that it wasn't easy. I'm giving any listeners who are open a bypass of what I had to go through, which was brutal. Because after I started having those experiences, I had a lot of other darkness during my exploration. That's one reason why I'm a spiritual emergence coach because I don't want other people to experience some of the darkness because there's a lot of darkness out there on some of these spiritual paths that are not, there are some souls that are spiritually exploring that have a lot of work to do. And I had to interact with some of them and it was not fun. And now I feel I'm in such a peaceful, safe time of my life, grounded, centered, scientific, spiritual, ready to serve, serving those that anyone that crosses my path that is ready to change and do the work. But meditation is an extremely powerful way to let all the clutter in your mind drop out. Mm. And really after meditation, reflecting on where you are in your life, what is it you really want to do? What's your part? Anything that's challenging in your life right now, what's my part? How can I change it? How can I be a better person while I am still on this planet and interacting with others and whatever I'm doing? You know, and I think that's such the powerful part about spiritual practice is that I then my mind is much more clear about what I'm supposed to be doing that day, that week, that month, the next year, how I can be better in my interactions with others. And I, I have to say that we all have moments that challenge us to the core. Every spiritual person and non-spiritual has to deal with it. Might as well go as deep as we can spiritually and mentally so that when we come back out on our own with whatever practice that's right for you, so that when you come back out, you're really ready to be the best that you can be. And so that's what I love doing. Um, and I, I mentioned, I wanted to mention one population that I'm poised to just about serve. You talked about PTSD. I've taken a couple of trainings about how to teach trauma, trauma conscious yoga, mm. and I teach meditation at the end. <clears throat> and I really want to teach to women that are in domestic violence shelters or are just coming out of one because I had some physical violence after I started having the blissful experiences. And then again later, and it's like, I don't want that to happen to other women. So some of these women who are going through violent experiences and then recovering, they may be spiritually exploring and be having not 
you know, not feeling grounded, needing guidance. And so that's a population that I, um, I'm poised to serve here because I just finished some training. So I, I've been teaching yoga and practicing for over 20 years and meditation is still relatively new to me. I've only been doing it now for four years in this lifetime, but um, that's my feeling about meditation is on my quote in my book, which is not mine. And I could not find out who it was, but said meditation is medication for the mind. That's going to be true. It is. And meditation is just such a beautiful thing. And we, uh, there are, there are certainly so many prejudices out there against um, this practice of just grounding yourself, um, giving yourself a chance to switch off the sympathetic nervous system and rather actually stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system for you actually coming off the hamster wheel and just taking a moment to pause. And it is during those parasympathetic uh, periods that your body can heal, that your body can come up with answers to questions that are, that are plaguing you and harassing you. And suddenly it is those beautiful moments of clarity where you get ready to change or where answers come to you that then allow you to take the next step, whatever that may be. But if you never actually experience that, that is a very sad thing. Now, meditation comes in so many versions, some of them more spiritual, like maybe what you have described. Others are very practical, um, where uh, there are not many deities uh, concerned and not too many chakras, but it's more focusing on really on the breathing, on the breath work, etc. So mm -hmm. there are, whilst maybe one version might sound rather surreal and, and maybe odd for you, there may be other ways of, of doing that. Some people would say that maybe uh, if you're very religious and you're in deep, deep prayer, um, something similar may occur, parasympathetic um, uh, activation. So everything calming down. I think ultimately there are many ways how you can get to that level. So don't, don't shy away to explore and figure out what is the right thing for you. We are all different. We all have different core beliefs. We are all different in various stages in our life. Something that might sound absolutely bonkers to you now, in three years' time, maybe you actually say, damn, I was just not ready to hear the message then. So who knows? Who knows? But it's certainly, it's a beautiful thing. So if, if, if your paths cross or if your path crosses with the path of a healer or someone who recognizes maybe that you're in need of something and offers you that talk or offers you a healing session or offers you a um, something new to consider ask yourself really what have you got to lose um, is there really uh, you know are you standing in your own way of actually getting better but I would like to say another thing, please. There is a hierarchy of needs and the spiritual awakening is on the very, very top. It's like the crown on the top. So 
if you're living a life where at the very bottom, you don't know where the food is coming from, you're constantly dehydrated, you're constantly in fear of your life, uh, you have all those kind of sympathetic fight and flight kind of things, it's really, really, really hard to focus only on top of there on spiritual awakening when down there the whole foundation crumbles but maybe that spiritual awakening gives you time for a moment to think my god what am i doing here i mean i say my god my krishna my allah my my uh, spaghetti monster whatever whatever is is your uh, your belief system don't get hung up on on any kind of of of, of religion um maybe you get the clarity to address some of the things right now of the things that you can do for example to rehydrate right now you could take a big glass of water and actually see how that feels you can take a deep breath and see how that feels um you can maybe uh, take time to actually eat something if you've been running around like a blue ass fly so it is those kind of things okay so there is a life out there waiting for you guys. And I think spiritual uh, awakenings and, and a, a more spiritual component to your life can only be a beautiful thing. There is, there is, I don't see anything negative to it. If you just mm -hmm. let it, okay? Mm -hmm. If you just accept that maybe your parasympathetic nervous system deserves a bit of support, that maybe the powers that heal you from inside are saying, are you nuts? Can you just stop running for a moment? Can you just stop escaping your reality for a moment? Yes, you've got shitloads of drama. We know that, but we are burned out. Your poor adrenal glands are going nuts. <laughs> they have been so for the last decades. Hey, maybe it's time for you to actually just come off the hamster wheel and actually uh, explore that and, and, and see if by igniting your spirituality um what will happen what will happen to your life i think it it will it will change that's for sure it might lead you onto paths of as you indicated uh, elizabeth healing comes in layers trauma comes in layers so in ultimately you might be able to deal with something which might be a bit painful like pulling a tooth but then at least that that nasty thing is out of, out of your soul and okay you can get on with life and then maybe you can come to the next thing that needs a root canal and and you sort that out so it's beautiful absolutely beautiful so elizabeth i mean i'm um what a journey for you what a transformation from a deadly diseases investigator to now a healer of healers, um, a person who is helping others to to explore a different part of their lives, and it it just shows that any transformation is possible. Yours is extreme from one brain to the other brain side, and that's that's cool. That's beautiful. We all can do that if we let it. Okay. So, Elizabeth, if people actually want to know more about you, for example, your book, tell us about your book to start okay. off with. It's titled Stillness and Wilderness, A Bold Ride from Despair to Deep Wisdom and Love. And uh, there's a 
an adjective called brutiful because it was brutal and beautiful. <laughs> um, and I, it's available on Nook and Amazon. If you go on YouTube and you just put stillness and wilderness in, you'll see like a little one minute trailer on it. Um, you can go to your local bookstore and ask them to order it if you don't want to order through Amazon um, or Barnes and Noble or or one of those big big operations. It's also available on Audible, and I for anybody who wants to listen to it that wants just a free copy, I have some promotional copies. You can reach out to me. You can find me on Elizabeth with an S instead of a Z. Elizabeth, basically ElizabethLava.com. And you'll see that I have some logos on there about bees. They're very, uh, bees are a sign of miracle to me. So if you can't remember my name, just think of a bee, right? Bees are miracles. BeTrueYou.com is my other URL because I want to support you to be truly you, to be, to manifest your bows, your incredible divine qualities that you already have in you and to work on the rest of them. And um, what I want you to get out of the book is not necessarily my journey, but there's about seven pages of resources at the back. So if you're having a transformation that's turning into a crisis, which is the subtitle of a book called Spiritual Emergency, and they're thought leaders on this, um, there's a list of resources there. I mentioned ACIST. There's other, there's like support groups that are free. So if you're like, I don't want to pay Elizabeth <laughs> to support me, I'm broke. There are support groups that are on there. Um, so, and if you buy the electronic version, you can actually click on the webpage. And each book that I have listed, each web page opens you up to a whole nother world of wisdom on this topic of when a transformation turns into crisis and there's mental and spiritual components and you're trying to sort it all out. Um, and there's a segment in there about how to ground. And I just want to acknowledge that Emma Bragdon, um, one of my mentors, um, some of those resources came from her through the course I took from her just to bow to her. And um, I'm, I am certified in holistic health life purpose, spiritual and spiritual emergence coaching. So I take a very holistic approach to support you if you're going through transformation and you need some support. Yeah. I'm very gentle in my coaching <laughs> and I put on uh, meditation and yoga workshops and retreats. So if you want some healing and I call one of the retreats stillness in the wilderness because I love to do it in nature, um, uh, guiding people through their healing process. And I, um, I just want to acknowledge that, yes, alternative healers, going to energy healers, massage therapists, you know, chiropractors, all these, there's so many different types of healers that I've been to through due to a different journey I've been through with my own body. And I always support people looking at merging both ways. And the book kind of, if you look at the resources in the back, you can see it's a blending of Eastern and Western, Eastern and Western wisdom for sure. And that's the ideal way. Take the best of both sides. Why sit firmly in one camp and fight the other when both camps together, bringing them to the same table, can where one and one makes free? How beautiful can that be? So I very much practice that in my own life. And guys, I invite you along to the journey. Uh, Elizabeth uh, has been scared by her journey, but look at her now. Um, I was scared and yeah, I got my ducks more more in a line not yet in a row i'm still working on that okay so it is it's an ongoing journey but this journey i wouldn't like to miss it for anything because it is it is constantly challenging me it's constantly healing me it's constantly uh, convincing me and, and and showing me that it is a privilege for me to make choices and these choices are either letting me 
be a better man, or maybe not so much. Sometimes I make the wrong choices, but increasingly I make the right choices. And I want you guys to come along. It's a beautiful journey. Elizabeth, thank you so much for, for coming onto my show. You're an amazing woman. Uh, you're uh, on your own journey and I wish you all the best for it. And, and um, I commend you for, for opening up that kind of quite difficult, difficult right brain healing, all those kind of beautiful things that are happening, making it available to, to others, maybe in a, in a more simplified and, and kind of a, of a, you know, more accessible way. So it's beautiful. Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming on to my show. My honor to be on your show. You're a wonderful host. Thank you, Stefan. <laughs> and you guys out there live with passion. And the past does not equal the future. So make right now a decision that maybe changes that. Look after yourself. Bye. <laughs>